This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. For the FDA, as for so many agencies, information technology is a big ticket expenditure. The Health and Human Services Inspector General examined FDA contracting officers dealing with one large deal and found a few things to tighten up. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from the IG's Director of Cybersecurity and IT Audits, Jarvis Rogers. The methodology of the study was kind of interesting. You looked at a task order type of contract, a single contract with a single contractor that the FDA used across different components over a period of years. Just tell us about the methodology here first. Well, you know, here at the OIG, we firmly believe that what gets checked gets done. Um, So we, you know, in this case, we looked at the total of the contract that we looked at was a little over $26 million. Over around that same period, FDA had spent about $2 billion but in this case, we were able to find some find some issues, find some deficiencies that we'll talk about here, I'm sure, soon, and ultimately resulted in some, some really impactful change across the enterprise. So FDA actually did implement some new regulations, some new, uh, some new procedures where they're going to be now looking at um, some of the issues that we identified across the entire enterprise. So even from looking at, you know, just one uh, contractor in this case, we were still able to have uh, a wide impact. Well, what did you find? Well, we found that in some instances, the contracting officer did not appoint a core. And uh, a core is actually a very important role because they administer the day-to-day management of the contract. Core stands uh, so for, it, that stands for contracting I'm officer's sorry, con- representative. You got it. You got it. You got it. So in this case, a core was not uh, officially appointed. And that could actually present some some issues for the government in the future. Should there be a challenge if the Corps were to ask a contractor to perform a certain duty and they were not adequately authorized under FAR regulations uh, to ask the contractor to perform those duties, if there happened to be a protest in the future, there'd be a number of steps before it would actually get there. But if it, you know, if it got to a, a legal issue, the government could kind of be in a pickle uh, if there was a situation in the Corps. Was so not the, authorized to tell the contractor to perform certain duties. So the contracting officer then does what in a given action, and what does the core do? I guess maybe it would be helpful to understand the differentiation of labor there. Well, the contracting officer uh, under the FAR is sort of the go-to person, and then they delegate their duties uh, to the core. So in this, so when we, when we talk about the core, the core is actually acting on behalf of the contracting officer. So the contracting officer, I would say, is as a level up, and then the core would sort of be one level down uh, beneath that. But they can perform a lot of the same duties that the contracting officer would perform. And in some instances, the contracting officer may not appoint a core and may just do some of these duties on their own. But you found in some cases there was no contracting officer's representative, but neither did the job get done that either the CO or the COR would have done. Well, we found that there there was a core, but they were not officially appointed. So the a lot in a lot of instances, the the core was was in place, but again was not sort of officially in place. And we found in some other instances where there there was not a core appointed, but then the contracting officer sort of missed a couple things uh, where they didn't complete a price evaluation and a pre award review, and there were some signatures that were missing on on some other documents. Yeah, so these sound like administrivia, but actually they're pretty much regulations enshrined in the FAR, sounds like. 
Some of them, yes, uh, and some of them were um, were HHS requirements. The funding determination document was an HHS requirement, and the uh, recommendation for war document was also uh, falls under the HHS requirement. We are speaking with Jarvis Rogers. He is the Inspector General's Director of Cybersecurity and IT Audits at Health and Human Services. And if you look at all of these discrepancies or procedures that weren't quite followed, is there any evidence that the wrong things were delivered or that FDA did not get what it should have contracted for? I mean, what was the net effect of what you found in terms of the procedural discrepancies? Well, sometimes we find some good things. So I I do want to take a second to kind of talk about those. I mean, FDA did have policies and procedures in place to make sure all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. Uh, We didn't find any instances where FDA did not get services that it paid for or anything like that. We just found, again, as as we just talked about, instances where a core was not appropriately appointed. And these things, you know, should a number of um, other actions occur, uh, could snowball and result uh, in some some problems for, could have resulted in some problems for FDA. Uh, But overall, FDA did have sort of the foundation in place. And when we do an audit, we kind of look at the kind of the whole internal control structure. Um, we referenced the, uh, not to get too wonky here, but we referenced the Government Accountability Office Green Book, which has five phases in it. Uh, one of the last phases in there is monitoring. So where the organization would have controls in place to monitor, to see if the internal controls that it has implemented, in this case, the policies and procedures, are actually effectively working. So what we saw here is that FDA was uh, could have improved some of its monitoring, and we were pleased with uh, the response that FDA provided to one of our recommendations where it said that it would increase uh, its monitoring controls as a result of this audit. All right, let's get back a step here to the major recommendations. I mean, what generally were they? So the the major recommendation I would say is the the one that that I just addressed where we had one recommendation for FDA to evaluate internal procedures and documents for key contracting decisions and activities to verify that all supporting contract documents are based on current HHS and FDA policies and procedures. So with that, uh, as I just mentioned, FDA instituted a new program where it's going to conduct additional audits and reviews going forward. We hope that this should result in long lasting cultural change. Uh, Some of these changes will help ensure that oversights that we identified during this audit do not occur again in the future. And ultimately what this will do is it'll protect the interests of the American people and protect the tax, the tax dollars of all of us. And I know we're very familiar with that as well. Sure. Uh, either paying out taxes or about to pay out taxes very soon. And just one detail I wanted to follow up on, too, in your recommendations was contractor performance and collecting that information because we discussed some of the front-end activities of having the COR and the contracting documents all signed and sealed correctly. But then after the fact, there is contractor performance monitoring. And it seems like that was an important part of, of your report is to make sure that they followed up after the contract award to make sure that the contractors did what they were supposed to. Yeah. So, you know, after, um, you know, what the government likes to see is after a contractor performs for the government, that there's actually, you know, they're sort of graded. And FDA, in some cases, was not timely putting in the HHS system its evaluation of the contractor performance. As a result of this audit, you know, what, what FDA said and, and what's in, in their response to the report is that they're going to work more closely with HHS to ensure that the contractor performance uh, is done timely going forward. 
And the other thing I think is key here, you you note that FDA noted that there was a lot of staff turnover in those three years that you studied, which kind of yeah. mitigates toward, hey, if you bring new people in to do contracting, you better you know watch them and watch the watchers to make sure everything gets done right. Well, and that's why, you know, as we've, you know, as, as, as you've heard me kind of kind of talk about quite a bit is the importance of that audit and that follow up and that monitoring. I mean, I can't overemphasize the importance of that. Um, you know, it's not just putting the policies and procedures in place, because, again, you could have new people come on board. You can introduce them to the policies and procedures, but then you have to have that kind of check and balance in place to make sure that they're actually meeting the requirements of the policies and procedures. And again, the big thing for us is when that check and balance is in place, it creates a, a culture, right? It creates a different type of environment. People talk, there's water cooler talk where it says, you know, hey, Sam, you know, um, we do periodic checks to make sure that the performance uh, evaluations are done timely. Uh, we do periodic checks to make sure that all the appropriate sign-offs are done. When that culture and that and that and those conversations occur, at least from my experience in the ORG community for more than 20 years, uh, it starts to uh, permeate throughout the organization and you're able to um, see the change that, that that you're really aiming for, right? So so we were, again, we were pleased with the actions that FDA has taken. We hope that as a result of this audit and the additional controls that they're going to put in place from a monitoring standpoint, we won't see these things happen again. Sounds like that old Alec Baldwin movie, Coffee, is for people that dot their I's, cross their T's, and follow up after the award. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Jarvis Rogers is Director of Cybersecurity and IT Audits at the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, speaking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community oh uh, yeah almost uh shane it's almost immeasurable the things i've learned since i've been with special olympics i um, one of the things that drew me to special olympics uh when i made the move over from from the nfl uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba they basically were in d direct care, and and I will say, and on a obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, 
you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he, he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever, and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. 
Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.